The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. A couple of weeks ago, I went up to my youngest daughter, Ava, and said to her, Ava, would you like to go on a daddy-daughter date? I'm a father of two girls, and I absolutely love getting this opportunity to spend time with my kids. And right now, daddy-daughter dates consist of going to fast food restaurants or to parks. I know that's going to change as they get older, probably more to malls and other places. But right now, that's what it looks like in this current setting. And so I go up to her and ask her, like, hey, do you want to do that? And she says, yes. And that just brings so much joy into my own heart. And so when it comes to daddy-daughter dates for the way that my family does, or at least for the way I do it, is sometimes I plan something and sometimes I let them plan something just so to have them get to share what they want to do and ultimately get to, you know, receive some of the things that I like to do. So it was her turn to pick. So it's like, Ava, what would you like to do? And she looks at me and puts both hands in the air and just goes, dinosaur park. And I look at her back with utter confusion. Not because I don't know what she said, I know exactly what she said. I know what dinosaurs are, and I know what parks are. The only thing that I know that those two words are next to each other are in Hawaii, and I'm not taking you to Hawaii to go see uh, Jurassic World. Way too young and way too far for a few hours. And so I'm looking at her with utter confusion, and she must have recognized the question mark on my face because she goes again, dinosaur park. I was like, to which I then go, sweetheart, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I was like, oh, maybe you're talking about this park that has all these like animals cut out in the, the, the play structure. No, dinosaur park. Okay, and I start to list off park after park after park that we have taken our daughter to. And she continually says no after each one. So eventually I go to her and say, I'm really sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. Let's just go to the train park here in Morgan Hill. And she goes, okay. But you can almost see like the disappointment on her face, which was super sad. But we end up having a good time. Well, last weekend, uh, we went on a family outing. And uh, in my family, we tried to do uh, one day of the week, we tried to do something together, either the whole day or a couple hours. And each person in our family gets to pick once during that month what that looks like. And it was Ava's turn to pick. And as you probably guessed it, she goes, dinosaur park. <laughs> and this time we're going, okay, I've got to figure out how to do it. So, you know, maybe it was Jesus or the Holy Spirit. He goes, show pictures. So I go to my throne, phone and start scrolling through pictures of parks. And eventually I get to one. She goes, that one. And it was Dennis the Menace Park <laughs> in Monterey. Which kudos to her because Dennis the Menace is hard to say as an adult. But think about a three-year-old trying to say that. It's very hard. How many of you guys have ever been in a conversation like that? Now, for all the parents in the room that have toddlers, I'm sorry for triggering you. I know they're away and you wanted to get away from that, but I'm not talking about a conversation with your three-year-old. I'm just talking about a conversation with a friend, a coworker, a boss, a spouse, a neighbor, where they express something. Like they, 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 they talk to you about this or they give you a budget report or they give you something and you assume I know exactly what that means. But as the story progresses or as the information is unfolded, you realize what they said and what you thought they said or how they meant was not aligned. And it was not aligning at the end of that story. And you're going, oh no, what happens? 
And usually one of two things happen. We usually just brush it off and just continue about our day. Or hopefully we go, help me learn more about what you were trying to communicate because there was a disconnect. And when it comes to the scripture, I think too oftentimes we come with our own understanding of things and we miss what the original writers are trying to communicate. And if we're not careful, we'll instantly read through something and go, I know exactly what that means and can continue to move on in the story. And yet we don't slow down enough to think through what is this trying to express and what is it trying to mean? Today, we're gonna be looking at one verse, just one verse, well, multiple verses, but the focus is one verse. And I know that for most of us in the room, the moment I read it, you go, I know exactly what this is saying and I'm either doing this well or I'm not doing it well. And so let's just move on. I get it. You know, good sermon, high five, sweet. I can go watch the football game here in a couple minutes. But I want us to pause and slow down because what I believe it's trying to communicate to us is a fuller definition than what you and I have. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Proverbs chapter 13. And as you're doing so, I just wanna remind you, we're in the middle of this series called Proverbs, Wisdom for Life. And I'm gonna give a little backstory to lead up to this because I think it's very important to the rest of it is that Proverbs is one of the three wisdom books in scripture. Now for all of you are like, but the whole Bible is wisdom. Yes, I understand. But in the Old Testament, the, uh, in the original Hebrew Bible, there were three books designated as wisdom. One was Proverbs. It's the one that everyone loves because as one theologian put it, it's like lady optimist. If you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad will happen to you. It's the one that everyone likes to go to because it's the ones that makes us feel the best. Because we have statements like, a Proverbs a day will keep the devil away. Why? It's because we like going to these black and white things. But if you experience any a part of life, you recognize that life isn't always black and white. And that's when the Ecclesiastes writer comes into play, which is the second of those two. And the Ecclesiastes writers is called the age-old critic. They've experienced, he's experienced a lot of life and realized life is not black and white. And sometimes bad things happen to good people and sometimes good things happen to bad. And what he's trying to communicate in his book is, if you, depending on your translation, you've probably heard the word meaningless over and over again, which is not a good translation of the word, but rather the word that's being used is a vapor. And what he's trying to communicate to us is that life isn't something you can grasp in your hands. And so if you're trying so hard to hold on to things, it's, it's not possible because eventually something happens. You can do all the right things and, and not go out of your way. So learn to have your hands open towards life. But that still leaves us with the question, where does wisdom come from and who has it? Which leads us to the hardest of the wisdom books. It's the one, if you've grew up in, scripture, uh, in a Bible uh, experience, you probably have tried to avoid the book because you don't like it. If you have no idea what it is, I'll express it. It's a book called Job. Job is a book about a guy who by God is defined as a good man. And then he allows the devil to then come and take everything away from him and said, will you choose to worship me? And then we see this very long conversation between Job and his four friends, and they're all coming to him with this idea, you must have done something wrong because life is more black and white. And yet we've been told from the start, he's a good man. 
And what we can learn is this, is that Job experiences the fullness of the Proverbs wisdom. Good happens to good. But he also experiences the fullness of the Ecclesiastes wisdom, that life is not black and white. It's sometimes comes, some things, sometimes hard things come to others. And then it leads us to the question, then what is wisdom? Which is at the end of the book where we define that wisdom is not in something a man can come up with, but rather it is a person, God, Jesus. And he was the one who created wisdom. And so we must look towards his wisdom and understanding, not our own. And I want that to be the backdrop for today. Will we choose to allow our hands to be open? to try to understand what the proverb writer is expressing by looking towards his God's wisdom, not our own. So if you have your Bible, it is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. It says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. I'll read it to you again. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Right? And what what I mean by that is like, do we read this and go, I know exactly what this means, right? It, It means that if I do good, then eventually I would give something to my grandchildren. And if I don't do good, then eventually what I have will be given to those who are righteous. But if we slow down for a moment and ask ourselves, if we look about the backdrop of our own life, is that always the case? We have some amazing family friends that I believe, no not perfect, have spent their life pursuing after Jesus to the best and fullness of their ability. And many, many years ago, they were in a business deal that went south and they lost everything. I'm not using that figuratively. They literally lost everything, including their home. And it was devastating and heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. And and it'd be easy for us to be like the friends of Job and say, you must have done something wrong because that wouldn't happen otherwise. But that's not the case. There were good people who had a very horrific thing happen. And now the inheritance that they would give is gonna look different, at least from the way that I understand inheritance or the way that I grew up understanding inheritance. My guess is that also you realize that there are people in your life, whether that personally you know of, or you've read about, or you've seen, who are not good people. And their wealth continues to grow and their ability to give is continuing. Right? They got money from someone else. They're giving money to someone else. Like, and yet they're not good people. And so if this passage that we were just reading was solely about wealth, meaning my understanding of an inheritance is equal to wealth, then why didn't the writer say it this way? A good man leaves his wealth, a good man leaves his wealth to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. If, if this was solely about money, then why did the original writer not use the same word twice? Because what he is trying to communicate or they are trying to communicate to us is something different. And this is what we have to understand is this, is that we- inheritance is not a synonym for wealth. 
It simply means to give or receive a possession. That's the first point. An inheritance is not a synonym for wealth. It simply means to give and receive a possession. Now, if you're sitting here going, Ricky, you're just saying the same thing in a fancier way, right? What else do I have to give besides the clothes off my back, the cars I have, the, the home I have, or my bank account? What else is there to provide? Well, let's look at that. So we're gonna do that by looking at one of the first times we come across inheritance being passed down. And, and it's in the story of Genesis, which is in the first book of the Bible. And you can mean Genesis chapter 25. And I'm gonna summarize a little bit and read some parts. But we're gonna be reading a story about a family of a guy named Isaac and Rebecca and their twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Isaac is the grand, or sorry, is the son of Abraham who is what we call the founder of faith, the forefather of faith. And, and he was not given that because he was greater than anyone else. It was simply when God scanned across the land and was looking for someone to represent him on earth, Abraham said, yes, I will continue to worship you when no one else will. And so he says, okay, then I choose you. It'd just be like if I asked any of you guys to help me move later today, I need a truck. And I was like, I got someone I can help. Like, I'd say, yeah, I choose that person. So Abraham has, has Isaac. Now Isaac and Rebecca are getting old in, in their life and they're wrestling with who do we give this inheritance to? And eventually they have children and they get pregnant with twin boys. And we're told that there is, they literally are constantly wrestling in the womb, which I can only imagine how painful that must've been for Rebecca. <laughs> Uh, never thought about that then, but after having kids, I'm like, gosh, that's crazy that it was so evident they had to write about it. But they wrote about it because it was a foreshadowing of what their life was gonna look like, that they were gonna be so different with one another, but constantly at war with one another. And so we're told that Esau comes first, which means that he is the, 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 the birthright child, which means he will get a double portion of the inheritance. And then Jacob. Esau was a red, hairy man. That's how the Bible described him. It's not how I wanted to be described, but that's how he was described. And then Jacob was described as a smooth man. Once again, I don't know if either one of those is a good, good definition of how to define you, but nevertheless, those are the two ways they describe. Esau was the one who wanted to go out and hunt and fish, and he loved being outdoors. Jacob wanted to be at home and cook. Two men polar opposite. As they grow up, we eventually read a story that I'm going to read to you right now in uh, Genesis 25, uh, starting at verse 29, where it says this. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birth." right now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. For what use is a birthright to me? Guys, hangry is an issue, right? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate it and drank it and rose and went, uh, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we're told that 
Esau comes home after a long day of hunting, has got nothing to serve it, and he's hungry. And in his, and so he comes in smelling stew and, and comes to his brother and says, I need help. I want some of this food. I'm hungry. And he goes, sell me your birthright. And out of his hangriness, he gave up the ability to get a double portion of the inheritance. He should have had a Snickers with him. Right, like he, he made this decision to give up something of great value to be satisfied in that moment. And so they continue, and then we are told that he literally starts to despise that. And that's important to note later. So the story continues. Eventually um, their father, Isaac, is getting old of age and he goes to his son and, and in chapter 29, Esau and says, Son, I'm going, I'm going to be passing on soon. I want you to go on hunting and bring me back a meal so that I can then bless you, give you this inheritance. And listen to what happens. We're going to read a little bit because it's important. In 27, starting at verse 5, it says this. Now, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for the game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard that your father, um, heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I commanded you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves." And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But when Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall, shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, not a blessing. His mother said, to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put on the delicious food and the bread, which she prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went to his father. So let's just think about what just happened. Rebecca hears that her husband is about to give a blessing, this inheritance to Esau, and then goes to her younger son and asks him to commit identity theft. That's what he does. And we have, that should cause us to pause for a moment because how is identity theft going to work back then? It's not bank transference to bank transference. It's possession of which they physically have. It's not like you can go cut out a piece of land, pick it up, and just start walking away with it. Right? It's, it's, that's not possible. And if it was solely about money, if the inheritance was solely about money, what did Jacob already have? a double portion of the inheritance. He'd already been given it. His brother had sold it to him for a bowl of stew. And yet his mom is calling him to commit identity theft. But not only is she saying that, she's willing to take it another step. 
Because what was Jacob's concern? He said, mom, if I go there, I don't sound like Esau. I don't smell like Esau. I don't feel like Esau. He's gonna know I'm not Esau. And he, instead of bless me and give me this inheritance, he's going to curse me. And what does she say to him? Your cur- the curse would be upon me, my son, not you. Do as I say. Why then, if it was solely about money, would his mother be willing to take upon a curse? Especially if the money was already what he had. (coughs) Why? It's because there was a greater inheritance in which he needed to receive. See, to be the birthright, the first son in a family, it meant that you were supposed to be the spiritual provider as well as the physical provider. And Isaac was about to give his son the spiritual blessing, but Rebecca didn't want the son who despised it to be the one leading them spiritually. And so what does she do? She makes sure the son who said he wanted the authority was willing to walk in that authority, to, the willing to then lead in that authority, own it. So she wanted to make sure he was receiving the fullness of the inheritance or rather the greater version of the inheritance, which was the spiritual blessing, not the physical one. And what you and I have to understand is this, which is the second point, that the, in the kingdom of God, The focus is on a spiritual inheritance. That's the focus. That's what's of greater importance. But to be clear, I'm not saying that means that you need to neglect the physical one. Both of these boys received some property. But once again, if it was solely about a physical thing, why then did Jacob run away, leave all of his possessions behind? if it was about money. Now, this theme of of a spiritual inheritance is is so clearly communicated through both the Old and New Testament. And and you can totally have fun doing it, but I'm just gonna look at one story in in the New Testament with an interaction with Jesus. And this is in in Luke chapter 12. Um, And this is is what it says in Luke chapter 12, starting at verse uh, 13. It says, someone in the crowd came to him, this is Jesus, and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to the man, uh, said to him, man, who made you judge and arbitrator over you? He said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build up large ones. And there I will store all my grains and and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Lay up many years. Relax, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So the one who lays up treasures for himself is not rich and is not rich towards God. It's pretty intense, right? This, this, this kid comes up to Jesus and says, hey, tell my brother to split the monetary things I have, give this thing. And, and Jesus is like, why are you so focused on the things of this world that can perish when what is greater reward for you is one that is unperishable. That's actually how Peter says it in 1 Peter 3. He talks about like, because, like there's an inheritance that we can receive that is unperishable. Money perishes. The clothes on our back perish. The, 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 the cars we have eventually get old. The, the phones we go through like what? Like every like three years, right? Like all the stuff that we obtain go away. And yet we still focus in, focus on giving that to people. So then the question then becomes why? Why are we doing that? Now there was a, a professor at Harvard and I'm really sorry, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he wrote a book that was called like How to Measure Life. And in this, he, he expressed that he had a bunch of friends who were extremely wealthy and all these things, and yet they had no one to give their wealth to because they had no relationship with people anymore. And so as they start asking the conversation, I'm summarizing a lot, but he starts to ask the question, where did this happen? And he says, the reason why we pursued after wealth is because it was the easiest thing to measure, not the most meaningful one. It was the easier thing to measure. It's easier to measure monetary things. It's easier to say, I have this much money in my bank account. I have this much stuff to provide for you. than it is to say, I'm going to measure what they even deemed greater, the spiritual inheritance. How do I measure what it means to sit with someone and, and read the Bible to them? Or to show up to a game or a dinner and know the impact in which that will make when it's so much easier to simply go, here is 20 bucks. See, too often us as humans, we want the easier option. And so if we're not careful, we'll start to focus in on the easier option. And in return, we start to ask the people that are closest to us to start making sacrifices that eventually make them no longer close to us. When we ask our friends, our family, our coworkers to start making short-term sacrifices so we can get the promotion, so we can close the deal, so that we can get, get a more comfortable lifestyle, eventually those people are no longer close to us. And, and let me be clear here, I'm not saying that you missing one dinner is going to make or break the relationship. What I am saying though, is that if you consistently say, I can't make it to the game today, son, I've got to go do this. I've got to, I got to do this work thing. Or sweetheart, I, I'm, I know we had, it's our anniversary. I know we had this dinner plan, but something just came up at work. Can you forgive me? Going to the friend that says like, hey, like we're gonna do this, you know, this reunion and we're all gonna go out together. And you're like, oh man, something just came up. What eventually starts to happen? They stop asking you to do it. Or you stop getting the phone calls to be invited to this hangout with your friends. 
your son or daughter or coworker or neighbor stops asking you or inviting you to the events that are valuable in your life because you know you're not gonna go anyways. Because we have allowed what was easier to measure to be what is of greater importance to us rather than what is of most importance, the spiritual one. And, and here's the reality of it. Like a spiritual inheritance has to be given, isn't given at the end of your life, it's given now. Why did Isaac have to go to his son before he passed away and say, I have a blessing to give upon you? That's because it's this, the third point in, this, in the kingdom of God, inheritance isn't something you just give at the end of your life, but rather it's something that you're giving every single day. Your spiritual inheritance, your, the inheritance in which you bestow upon people happen all the time. Because you don't just go from like, one position with, without important training to get to the next one. I mean, think about it. Right now, we, we are watching history unfold as in the changing of a monarch. Queen Elizabeth has passed away. Now, Charlie, the King Charles is now the new, yeah, King Charlie. That's weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it, the third is, is now the King of Britain. And it wasn't like Queen Elizabeth went to her, his, her son and said, Here's all the money you could possibly have. You can do whatever you want, but you got to hide in the dungeon until it's your day to rule. What was she having to do and actually revealing to us that she was doing? She was putting him in positions in which he could learn how to lead for the day in which he would lead. And if inheritance, once again, was solely about wealth, he has more money than any of us can fathom access to everything possible in the world, and yet he was still missing something. And he received it when his mother passed away. See, our spiritual inheritance, rather the inheritance in which we give, isn't something we give at the end of their life. It's something that we're giving every single day. And it's not just given to just our literal kids, it's given to anyone who's around us. What I think is so fascinating that in, in the Bible, the, the word good and man next to one another is appears less than 10 times. So those two phrases right next to each other, less than 10 times. Only twice though in the New Testament. Once describing Jesus after he had um, just healed a person and then also describing a man named Barnabas. Now let's just look at what, what it says. This is in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11 um, and verse 22, we said this. So this is, um, the church has been growing. People are going across other places and, they, and the church of Israel gets word that something is happening in this place called Antioch. So look at what it says in verse 22. The report came um, to the ears of the church in Jerusalem that, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he uh, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, this is Barnabas, was a good man. What made him good? Well, the Bible tells us because he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
Barnabas was described as a good man. It wasn't because of his wealth. It's because of his, because of his faith in God and God's presence with him. His faith in God and, 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 and God's presence with him. And so let's go back to the original text. In Proverbs 13, a good man, as we were just told what it was, wasn't a man of wealth, wasn't a man who was giving all these extra things, but rather a person who was faith, full of faith and in the presence of God leaves something, inheritance to his children's children. What is that man going to leave? His faith and his presence in the presence of the spirit of God. But the sinner's wealth is eventually laid up for the righteous. What is that simply saying? Is that eventually the day will come when God will restore right and wrong and the brokenness of our world will be given, all the, the brokenness of the world will be restored and those who are in right standing with God will be good. So the question I wanna ask you today as we start to wrap up, would it be simply this is, what is the inheritance in which you are focusing on? And do you realize the inheritance in which you are currently leaving? This past week, I, I got to meet with a couple of different people that expressed to me that I would love to get to know Jesus more, but I'm not stepping into a church because of this person because they have expressed that they had faith and yet they weren't acting like it. They became a bad representation of Jesus. And that person, those individuals left a negative inheritance to that coworker, to that child, to that friend. But I've also known people that are attending this church even now that said, because of this person, I am here because they were expressing an inheritance to me, revealing faithfulness and, and God's presence to me. And I had to go, what you have is something I want. And if that's there, I'm going. So which one are you? So what inheritance are you focused on? And the other one is this is, what inheritance do you need to start practicing in? Are you gonna leave it in an inheritance of forgiveness? Which means that you are going to lead in forgiving someone. So instead of holding bitterness and allowing them to rule your life, you're gonna say, I'm going to lay this at the feet of the cross and know that Jesus can redeem the story. So I'm going to forgive and I'm gonna show what forgiveness looks like to the people around me. Am I gonna lead in giving an inheritance of giving and saying like, I have been given much and so I will then give and return much and I will start to show the people around me what it means to bless those around me. What is the inheritance that you've been focusing it on and what is the inheritance you have to start practicing in? Because, it's, because the reality is this, Inheritance is so much more than money. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and, and just 
pray that you would help us, Lord. Lord, let, let us be people who are recognizing what we are leaving behind. That isn't just something that we do at the end of our life, but it's something that we do in the here and now. And what is of greater value isn't the possessions in which I have, it's, it's you, Lord. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help lead us in that because we cannot do this on our own because we need you. And so, Lord, as, as we take this, these moments just to, to, to reflect on your word and, and to sing this last song, let us be mindful of we need you, Lord, to be able to walk in this inheritance, which is of greater importance. So God, we give you this. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.